All right, you can take your Bibles, go back to Romans chapter 12 this morning. Back to Romans chapter 12 is where we'll spend our time. Pastor called me yesterday morning, actually we were at the Redmond's house, Holly and I for brunch, and he called and said, I just want to let you know, I'm not feeling the greatest, I'm going to try to preach Sunday morning, but from talking to him, it wasn't going to be a wise idea for him to preach this morning, so uh, I am here and we'll see how this goes. But uh, actually, I kind of had something that I was already working on, and uh, I I actually had started working on this a while back as I was going to do a series with our teens on the one another passages in Scripture and ended up doing some different things, so I kind of had a partial message already put together. So I went and I finished it yesterday afternoon, and uh, that's what we're going to get into this morning. You know, it's kind of interesting because recently, just in, in studying the one another passages and and different things. If you remember a few weeks ago in the Sunday evening service, um, I, I spoke on Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians chapter 4, we see this topic of unity inside the church. And, and we're actually going to look at that theme again this morning here in Romans chapter 12. The topic of unity inside the church is really a topic that Paul spends a lot of time on. There are a lot of verses that Paul talks about with regards to there being a unity with, with regards to us as believers. And uh, you know, I kind of went back and forth, like, well, I just spoke on this topic a few, a few weeks ago. Do I go back to it again? And you know, this is kind of what I had already started, so here we go. We're going to talk about this same topic, and if Paul spends a lot of time talking about it, it must be something important for us to spend a lot of time talking about as well. Most of you are probably familiar with the story of Robinson Crusoe, uh, an obstinate Englishman uh, who really ignored his father's own wishes uh, to become a member of the clergy. That's what, his, that's what his father desired for him. And instead of doing that, he actually opted for a life at sea. And uh, no sooner had his career in a life at sea had started that he suffered a shipwreck, and uh, he was cast ashore alive, but ultimately alone somewhere on an inhabited, uninhabited island off the coast of the New World. And maybe you've read the books, or I think there's movies as well for Robinson Crusoe. And, 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 and as you read through, you find out that, that he's on this shipwreck, he's on this island, this deserted island, with only the, the supplies that, that he could salvage from the wreck of his ship. And, and he manages to build a house and a boat and, and something of a life for himself on this, on this uninhabited island. Yet despite living in really a beautiful location, we find that Crusoe was never really truly happy in his setting. And, and we find out throughout the story that his reason for his unhappiness wasn't because he didn't have the things that he needed, but it was really because of his solitude. It wasn't the climate, it wasn't the food, or, or even the setting that, that made him so desperately unhappy, but, but rather it was the fact that he was alone. In fact, I believe this is a quote from, from the book, he was singled out and separated, as it were, from all the world to be miserable. You see, the island itself wasn't horrible. Yes, it was, it was a desolate island, but it wasn't horrible. It became horrible because of Caruso's unbearable solitude. And you know, this story has, if you've never read the book or even heard of Robinson Crusoe's story, you've no doubt seen this theme of this story because it has been taken and it has been used over and over and over again in our, in our current culture. In fact, it's almost become kind of like a cliche as our modern media has kind of been plagued with movies and with television shows that have kind of adapted this theme that we first find in Robinson Crusoe and now they've taken it and they've put it into all kinds of different things, but all of them seeking to answer this one question. 
The question of what happens when a person is cut off from society and from all luxuries and is forced to survive on his own. You know, these stories, they really all all speak and, and they all reveal a basic human need that we all have, and that is a need of community. We weren't created to be loners. In fact, no matter how introverted or how extroverted you are, you were created by God to be in a community with others and in a community in a relationship with God. We were created for relationship. And and really, that's part, I believe, of the image of God that is in us. Our God is a relational God. And so we were created as human beings to be relational. In fact, we see this very reality proven all the way back in the book of Genesis. As you go back to Genesis chapter 1, we read seven times in the creation account that God looked at his creation and what he saw was that it was very, very good. One very, the first time. Very good. But what follows... In Genesis chapter 2 is actually almost a contrast because in this, in this perfect and in this sinless world where man enjoyed perfect community with his creator, God looks at his creation in Genesis chapter 2 and he recognizes that there was yet one thing that was not good. All of his creation was good except for one thing that still wasn't quite right. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse 18, it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Within this perfect creation account of everything being good, there was one thing that was still not good, and that was that man was alone. Man's solitude. He was perfect and sinless at that point. He was in perfect harmony with God at this point. And yet God recognized the need for us as humans to be able to have community, to be able to have relationship with other humans. And so, of course, we realize that God then went and and he created Eve to be a companion to Adam and to allow him to have this community that he needed. And they were commanded to go and to populate the earth. Creating community. But you see, community is something that's, that's foundational to the way that God has designed us. We are created for relationships, and, and the Bible actually has a lot to say about our human relationships and, and how we should interact with one another. As I said, I was, I was about to, a while back, start a series on the one another passages of Scripture. And, and, and the Greek word that we translate one another is actually, it actually occurs 100 times in the New Testament. It occurs 100 times in 94 different verses. And of those 100 appearances, 47 of them actually give instructions for us as believers. Now, you could break them down even more. One-third of those one another commands, you could say, deals with the topic of unity. Another third deals with the, the topic of love. And, and, and then about 15% deal with the attitude of humility. And there's actually four that also deal with the topic of kissing, uh, if you really want to study that out. But I assure you that you won't be, it won't be that exciting of a study, uh, even though you may think it is, all right? But there are four that deal with that topic. But we see that the Bible has a lot to to say about living in relationship and about the community that we have with one another. So this morning, I want us to look at one of those one another passages that we find here in Romans chapter 12. And I want us to see how this idea of living in relationship with one another specifically applies to our relationships within the local church. And so let's look together, Romans chapter 12. We've already read these verses, but we'll read them again, beginning in verse 3. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul, he says this, he says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, 
According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith, for as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. You know, the scripture teaches that those who are Christians, we really have a special and a unique connection that God has established. Right before Holly and I left Massachusetts, um, actually, I think he might have still been going through it after we left, our pastor up there had started a series on the topic of fellowship, and an incredible series. And, you know, when we think about fellowship, we often think about meals and, 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 and those kinds of things. But, but the topic of fellowship in Scripture really doesn't have much to do with food. It has the idea of, of the fact that we as believers have have a lot of things in common. We have a natural fellowship because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. That there is a that there is natural common ground that we are able to come together and we are able to have a special, a unique connection that God has established for us as believers. In fact, Paul says in these verses that we just read that we are members one of another. There is a unity or there is a community that God has established amongst us as believers. And really, God has called us to a higher relationship with one another than those who don't know him. And it's God's will that the community of Christians, the community of believers, the the local church, that we would be models for all that is related to functioning and working together as the world looks for what it looks like to work together and to function together, the place that they should be looking at is not businesses, not sports teams, not all these different areas, but the place that people should be able to look to and say, this is how unity is supposed to work. This is how things are supposed to function is within the local church. That's what God has established. You know, throughout the New Testament, we discover that this community comes with some specific opportunities, and it also comes with very specific responsibilities, like we're told to exhort one another and to admonish one another and to encourage one another. You know, it's sad, though, that when we look at many churches and we look at many Christian relationships today, we often fail to see that kind of unity that Scripture calls us to. In fact, in in many ways, most Christian relationships are no different than world relationships. Many times we don't really find our community and our fellowship and our unity around Christ. We just find ourselves fellowshipping with those that we are like in secular things. When we have brothers and sisters in Christ that we have so much in common with that we are missing. And it's sad as to look at many churches and, and, and to see that kind of unity and that kind of fellowship and that kind of community that is missing. In fact, many times it seems that Christians are better at dysfunctional and destroying relationships rather than edifying and growing relationships. So it should be our desire to learn from God's word how to bring honor and how to bring glory to the Lord through the relationships that we have, yes, with unbelievers, but especially with other believers with inside the church. And Romans chapter 12 begins to tell us how this is all possible. And so on the heels of really one of the, some of the most familiar verses in all of Scripture, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul calls us to be living sacrifices, to be transformed with, with a new mindset. In verse 3, Paul immediately jumps in to tell us how that transformation and how that new mindset, that renewed mind, changes our relationships. But he begins to do that by offering us first a warning. And I don't have the points up on the screen for you this morning. I had pastor's points up there, and then I quickly changed it last night just to title slide. But Paul starts off in verse 3 by giving us a warning with regards to these relationships. 
Notice verse 3, Paul says, For I say, through the grace given unto me. And let me pause here real quick and not go any further before I point out that Paul begins his instruction on unity and relationships by emphasizing the fact that he's not speaking his own instructions, but he is speaking the very instructions of God. He says, I'm speaking these things, but but I'm speaking them through the grace that has been given to me. This is God speaking through me. This is not my opinion. This This is not what I have to say. This is what God has to say. And so this morning, I want us to recognize that that what we're looking at is not my opinion. It's not Paul's opinion. It's what God has to say with regards to the relationships that we have with other people inside the church. And Paul would make other similar statements in the epistles. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, As any man thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy God. And so we understand this morning as we study this passage in Romans, and as we really study all of Scripture, This is not man's instructions, but it is God's instructions. And the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is going to give us this warning about our relationships. And so our response ought to be to open our hearts and to open our minds and to receive this truth that the Apostle Paul is giving us through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul begins by clarifying that he's, that he's speaking the truth of God, and he, then he gives us this warning, and really this warning is, it, it's a twofold warning. First of all, Paul warns us about some faulty thinking that can very easily creep into our hearts and into our lives, and that will destroy relationships. Again, back in verse 3, for I say through the grace given unto me, To every man that is among you, here's the faulty thinking that we must be aware of, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Pride. That's that's the faulty thinking that Paul deals with here. It's the faulty thinking of pride, the idea that I exalt myself to a higher position and and to a higher authority than really I deserve. And, And there's nothing that ruins relationships more than pride. It stirs up strife because it it creates within us this, this elevated perception of how great I am. And really, there's nothing that great about us at all except for the grace of God within us. The Greek word that Paul uses here is the word hupofreneo. And it simply means this. It means to consider something of great importance. And Paul says, don't consider yourself to be of great importance. And, you know, we find the Apostle Paul follow that instruction that he gives as we read about him recognizing himself to be the chief of sinners and to be lowly and to be unworthy. How often do we pray something like, you know, Lord, I am nothing and, and I am worthless, but, but please use me in spite of me. And, and then when someone else comes and, and calls us nothing or worthless, we get all bent out of shape and kind of revealing how we truly feel about ourselves. We all struggle with it. Because all of us are capable of having a spirit of pride. You know, there are some that think themselves to be Superman, although they may not be faster than a speeding bullet, and and although they may not have the ability to leap tall buildings in in a single bound, they they think they're super because, in a sense, they think they're super because they're superior to others and maybe the gift that they have or in the talent that they they have, and, and so they view themselves as exceptional. And Paul says, whoa, hold on just a second. You need to reevaluate because you've got some faulty thinking going on. The story is told, maybe you've heard this story, I've heard this illustration used multiple times. The story is told of a a young man that was hired to work for a supermarket chain. And on his first day of work, he reported to the manager at one of the stores, and and the manager greeted him with a warm handshake and a smile, and, and he handed him a broom. 
He said, your first job is going to be to sweep out the store. And this young man, indignant at being assigned what he considered to be a menial service, he replied and he said, but I'm a college graduate. And the manager looked at him and replied and said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. Here, give me the broom, I'll show you how to use it. Like I said, I've heard that illustration used multiple times, but, you know, doesn't it kind of give us a picture of the attitude that we can sometimes have? And you know what? It's an attitude that takes place inside the church sometimes, too. And it destroys relationships. If I think myself to be better than others, I can't have good relationships with them. And the reality is, as we go through the pages of Scripture, we don't see that we are better we see how fallen we truly are. Paul in Galatians chapter three, 6 and verse 3 warns us of this thinking again when he says, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Charles Spurgeon, he once said, Do not desire to be the principal man in the church. Be lowly. Be humble. Be the, best, be the best man in the church, excuse me, the best man in the church is the man who is willing to be a doormat for all to wipe their boots on. The brother who does not mind what happens to him at all, so long as God is glorified. Ken Collier, he was the director and president of the Wilds for many years, still at the Wilds, but kind of retiring a little bit. He, he, he would always call it this, he calls it carpet-minded Christianity. And to be honest, one of the things that I always appreciated most about the Wilds is, is that mindset of being a servant. And, and even the president of the Wilds, Ken Collier, it was not too low of a task for him to go and clean toilets. In fact, it wouldn't be uncommon to see him doing something like that. It was a mindset of, I'm not better than anybody else. It's a mindset of, of what Spurgeon is talking about here, of being willing to be the doormat, the carpet, the one that is walked on, because I'm no better than anybody else. I, I just need to be a servant. You know, that's what creates godly relationships. And it's what creates godly community and godly unity inside the church. And obviously, there is no greater example of this than even Christ himself. As he got down to wash his disciples' feet. The lowest task there was it, was, it was, it was designed, it was reserved for the lowest servant in the household to be the one to wash the disciples, to wash people's feet. And yet here Jesus gets down. And he gives us an example of carpet-minded Christianity. Paul says, listen, you must be aware of faulty thinking, this idea of pride. We need to humble ourselves. We need to remain teachable. God wants us to have a spirit that allows him to take his word and to work in our hearts so that we can go and we can serve others. And when we recognize that we're really not all that great, and not all that special, I'll have a willingness to serve. And so if we're going to have godly relationships, Paul says we must be aware of faulty thinking, but he also says this, the second part is that we have to be aware of forgetful thinking. You know, one of the saddest outcomes of faulty thinking, the, the thinking of pride, is how it causes us to forget God's grace in our own lives. As Paul continues in verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Listen, when we realize that every gift and every ability that we have has been gifted or has been given to us by God, it's not something we deserved, it's not something we earned, it's not something we work for, it's not something we buy, it's a gift of God. And when we re remember that, when we realize that, how can there be any room for pride? Because my gifts and talents, aren't by, they're not about me. 
They're a gift from God. That, by the way, he can take away at any time. Listen, God is the source of all gifts and all abilities. And gave them to us to be used for his glory. Verse 3 says that God has dealt these to us. This means to distribute or to bestow or, or to impart. And Paul says he, he's dealt these to us by his measure of faith. It means it's, it's a determined extent. God has determined it. Not me. Not you. God has. It's God, that is, it's God who has given us the ability to do the things that we do. Yet, yet how often... How often do we forget that truth? And that's why Paul starts with this warning. He says, think soberly upon it. Literally, what Paul is saying here in the Greek is, is he's saying this. He's saying, to think with thinking that is sane. In other words, it's insane to think highly of yourself. And so think with thinking that is sane because we are lowly and everything we have and every gift and ability that we have is not because of us, it's because of our God. That's sane thinking. It's a call to have an honest evaluation of ourselves. James 1 verse 17 reminds us every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and it cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Ephesians 4 verse 7, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And the only source of goodness in me is not found in me, but it's found in Jesus Christ. So Paul begins this section. He says, listen, here's the warning. Before I even dig into a godly relationship, heed the warning because the rest of the verses don't matter if you have faulty thinking and forgetful thinking and you have a heart filled with pride. And then he goes on. And after sharing the warning to believers, he then shares with us the wonder of believers. There's the warning, but when the warning is heeded, there is a wonderful, incredible plan that God has for believers, and it's called the body of Christ, or it's called the local church. And you know, God designed this wonderful plan to function in a very particular way. And the next two verses, verses 4 and 5, describe for us the unity of this body when we heed the warning of verse 3. And just as our physical bodies are uniquely and, and they're wonderfully made and, and put together, God in the same way has a wonderful plan for the local church body to function together as well. Look at verse 4. He says, For as we have many members in one body... And all members have not the same office. And so the first thing that Paul mentions here about this wonderful plan and about this body is that this body, within this body, there is a uniqueness of each member. And again, if you were here for the Sunday night service where I looked at Ephesians 4, we looked at the same exact point, this idea of the, the, the uniqueness within each member of the local church. Paul says, listen, there's one body, but there's many members. The word members is translated from the Greek word, which means a limb or a part of the body. So, so just like the physical body where we have different members, the, the, the local church body has many unique and many different parts. And that is a wonderful thing. Imagine, since I was at Joel's house yesterday, I'm going to use it. Imagine if we had a bunch of Joel Redmonds running around. And that's all that was in the church. Or, you know, imagine if, imagine if we had a bunch of Terry Schweitzers and, and that's all that was in the church. Or, or imagine if we had a bunch of me. You know, that would kind of not be a very exciting church. No offense, guys, but, you know, if everybody's exactly the same, it doesn't really serve a purpose. It'd be like if, our if all the members of our bodies were the nose. That wouldn't be very good. And, and, and Paul says this, he says, listen, there is one body, but there are many members and they're all unique and they're all different. And that is such a wonderful thing that our God has created and something that we ought to rejoice over. 
In fact, without unique members of the body, there wouldn't be a well-functioning body. Just as God in His wisdom has created our physical bodies with different parts that serve different purposes and, and perform different responsibilities, in the same way God has created each member of His local church, of His church body differently. We're all different. In some cases, very different. And that's okay. We have different gifts. We have different personalities. We, we have different backgrounds. We have different looks. We have different viewpoints. We have different opinions. We have different goals. We have different dreams. Why, why is all that? Well, it's because God created us that way. And all those things are beautiful things inside the local church when the members are living in humility and heeding the warning of chapter of verse 3. But listen to this. All those things are destroying things when the members live in pride and view their gifts and their opinions as better or more important than another. That destroys a church. And some of you can maybe even give examples of churches that have split over silly things, like the color of the carpet. I've heard of stories, and it's just mind-blowing to me. It's like, what in the world? You know, why is that? Pride and selfishness. It destroys relationships. But Paul says, listen, it's okay. We all have different opinions, and we all have different talents and different gifts and different abilities, and that's a wonderful thing, and it creates a functioning body when each member is living in humility and viewing others as better than themselves. You know, some people think that there are lesser rules inside the church. Can I tell you there's not? In fact, in actuality, the Bible tells us that it's the Lord who adds to the church, and, and we can be sure that He is not adding unimportant parts to the body. Think about this. God designed every part of our, of our physical body to function as a whole. I mean, even the smallest and weakest of our five toes, that little toe, it, it may seem to be unimportant and almost redundant. However, we find out that that little small toe is actually crucial to maintain our balance. In fact, without our little toe, our ability to walk and to run and to skip would be significantly affected. Oh, it's tiny, it's small, maybe bigger for some, but it's tiny and it's small, but it's just as important as every other member of the body. And God has designed the church for the same way. Not every member of the church has the same function. In fact, verse 4 specifically says, but everyone is of equal importance. In 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 20, Paul reminds us of this truth. He says this, he says, for the body is not one member, but many. If the fool shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not the body, is, there, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, am I not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole, if the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, but one body. Verse 18, Paul says it's God who set in the body of the church as he pleases. It's such an incredible truth. The gospel attracts all kinds of people. And we may not get along with certain people, but... But we have to understand this. We have to understand that God has put them in our church for a reason. And that reason is for us to function as a unified body of Christ by expressing grace and learning to work together. You say, but, but I, just, I, I just, that person's just so different than me. Celebrate that. That's a wonderful thing. 
that the gospel has brought together people from different nations and different tribes and different tongues and, and different backgrounds and different opinions. That's a wonderful and a beautiful thing that God wants us to celebrate inside the local church as we are unified and work together as a body with members that serve different functions. Can I add this before we move on? That means that each one of you have a role to play inside this church. That means that there really shouldn't be any whose only purpose is to sit in the pew. Because God has gifted each one of us with gifts and abilities that are meant to be used to serve inside our local church. And when one member doesn't function, the whole body suffers. And so within this wonder of the believers, the body of Christ, we see there is a uniqueness. But Paul also then says that there is a unity. Not only is every member of the body important, but every member is to work together. Verse 5, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Teamwork within the local church, it enables the church to fulfill the mission of Christ. And think about it, in a single service, right, our service today, the pastor preaches, Nursery workers look after the kids. Ushers help out. Musicians play the music. Uh, teachers teach junior church. I mean, we have all kinds of people serving different functions and different purposes, and all of those things come together to form a functioning body for the advance of the gospel. But of course, we understand that we do have an enemy the devil, who would love nothing more than to see disunity inside the church of God. And yet Paul here says, listen, I want you to follow the design that God has set for the church so that in unity we can accomplish much for his glory. So we see in this passage two aspects of the unity of our body, our, our relationship in the body and our responsibility in the body. I'll, I'll go through these quickly, but within this unity, we see this relationship within the body. What, what should our relationships within this body look like? Well, well, we're each individual members, but together we're all one body in Christ. And so as a body, our relationships should be defined by what? We see in Christ, and that is an attitude of love. John 13, 35. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. I mean, when the world looks at the church, what they should see is an example of the love of Christ. They should see a difference in the way the church functions and, and they should be able to recognize by the members' love one for another that the church is, is distinct. It's, it's different from a secular organization. It, it just functions different because it's the church of the living God. And the unity and the love of the church should be a testimony to the presence of God within that church. There's also responsibility within this body when it comes to the unity as well. You say, well, if the, if the relationship within this unity is it's defined by love, what's my responsibility to it? Well, we're told in Scripture that God wants us to make unity in our homes and our churches, our mission. Each member of the local church has a responsibility not only to contribute to this unity, but also to seek to preserve this unity. Ephesians 4.3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirits in the bond of peace. Uh, an inter internationally renowned surgeon, he wrote this about the picture of the body of the church. Here's what he said. He said, the body of Christ... <clears throat> like our own bodies, is composed of individual, unlike cells that are knit together to form one body. The joy of the body increases as individual cells realize that they can be diverse without becoming isolated isotopes. Excuse me, isolated outposts. Incredible truth. But what happens when strife 
develops amongst the members of the church. When each member seeks to pursue his or her own selfish desires or or opinions, well, then the church is unable to function cohesively as God intended. And so the reality is this. Each member has the potential to hurt or to help the local body of, of, of the local church, the local body of Christ. After World War II, a group of German students volunteered to help rebuild an English cathedral that had been severely damaged by German bombs. And as word progressed, they, they became concerned about this large statue of, of Jesus whose arms were, were outstretched And beneath the statue was this inscription, it said, come unto me. But as they sought to restore this statue, they had particular difficulty trying to restore the hands because the hands had been completely destroyed. And so they're they're wondering, how in the world can we have a statue that says, come unto me, but, but no hands? And so after much discussion they actually decided to let the hands remain missing. And at the bottom of the statue, they changed the inscription, and instead of it saying, come unto me, the inscription now read this. It says, Christ has no hands but ours. You know, the local church is meant to be the hands of Christ. And you and I, as part of the church body, are to work together with other believers to fulfill the mission of Christ. You see, the wonder of the believer is that we are part of a body, and when we function in unity, we're able to effectively present the gospel to the lost and dying world. Our responsibility, what is it? Well, it's to endeavor to keep the unity of the church. So we have the warning, we have the wonder. And then finally this morning, Paul tells us about the work of the believers. See, God's plan for unity inside the local church can only be realized when the believers properly carry out their work. We didn't look at these verses previously, but look with me quickly at verses 6 through 8. Paul says, having then gifts differing. According to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. You know, when we go to determine what kind of job to pursue, like secular job, We often look at the different talents that we possess. In fact, uh, many um, schools, there's different kinds of tests out there that that you can take and you can kind of fill out your interests and all these different things and and it'll give you a result for what kind of job they would recommend. And it's all based off of the talents and and the skills and, and the interests that we possess. Well, in the context of the church, God has also equipped each of us with spiritual gifts. Not for ourselves, but to minister to and and to build up the body of Christ. And and the reality is these these gifts aren't even because we deserve them or have even earned them. They're gifts that are solely given by the grace of God. And listen, since they are divine gifts, Paul says, you've got nothing to boast about. If God can, able, can enable us to do certain things, it's for, his, it's for His glory and not our own. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, Paul says, For who maketh thee to differ from one another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Paul's asking the Corinthians, if everything good in your life is a gift of grace, How could you possibly brag about how great you are? And we can't. And that's why Paul started off this passage with the warning. So the question we're left with then is this. 
So how should we use these gifts that God has given to us? I think first, God wants us to use our gifts for works of gracious service. And I've mentioned this throughout. These gifts are given to us to, to, to serve others, specifically inside our local church. God wants us to use our gifts to serve Him and, and to serve others. And, and we're not going to take the time this morning to break down each one of these gifts. But as you look at this list, and there's, a, uh, there's other lists in Scripture that you can go to where, where you see some of the spiritual gifts that are listed out, I wonder how many of us could say, I know what my spiritual gift is. If you don't, I would encourage you to, to try to find that out. I believe that you can know what your spiritual gift is. You can absolutely know that. And by the way, I, I say gift singular. I, I believe that God has given some multiple, maybe even many of us, multiple spiritual gifts. I also believe this. I also believe that God has not left a local church where not every spiritual gift is present. In other words, I believe that within this church, every single spiritual gift is present because they're the gifts that are needed for the church to function properly and to function in unity. Now, I don't know what your gift is. but hopefully you do. And hopefully you're using it to serve God and to serve others. God has given us spiritual gifts for works of grace and service. He's also given us these spiritual gifts, and we are to use these gifts to work with a gracious spirit. You know, although every Christian has different strength and, and strengths and weaknesses when it comes to gifts, here's what we all can do. We can all choose to follow the commands that God has given to every Christian. Sometimes people become cynical or selfish in their service. But in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I'm nothing. Listen, you may know what your spiritual gift is. And you may even be using it. Paul says if you use it in pride, it might as well be worthless. And to use it with a spirit of humility and an attitude of graciousness. And again, that goes back to the warning of not having a faulty thinking and a forgetful thinking. Romans 12, 9 and 10. In the next two verses, Paul writes, he says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. God wants us to work in his church with a sincere love. The word dissimulation, it simply means hypocrisy, two-facedness. God doesn't want us acting a part, but he wants us to serve with a selfless kind of love that humbly puts others first. I'll finish with this, Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. The Apostle Paul, he says this, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You know, what, you know where Paul goes right after writing those verses? He goes and he spends another seven verses talking about how Christ exemplified that. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You say, how in the world can I live this kind of lifestyle? How in the world can I have this kind of unity? How in the world can I think of others better than self? Here's how you must have a relationship with Jesus Christ who modeled this for us 
and gives us the power to live a life of humility so that the church can come together and live in unity with one another, being an example to the world, the power of Christ that can defeat the power of pride in our hearts and in our lives and bring people from all different kinds of backgrounds and, 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 and nations and countries and can bring them together into one body that functions and works together to bring honor and to glory to God. We must heed the warning. Listen, if you've never accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior this morning, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he came and he died, setting the perfect example. He humbled himself for us so that we could become a part of his body. We could have a relationship with him. We could have forgiveness of sins. See, if you don't know Christ, you can't really be a part of this unity. You can't really be a part of this, this, this local body because the head of it is Christ. And if the head of you as an individual is not Christ, then you can't be a part of the unity of the local body. And so let me challenge you this morning, if you've never accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, would you choose to do that? He gave himself for you so you could have forgiveness of sins and a relationship with him. Those of us that know Christ understand this is what we have been called to within this local church. A life of unity, celebrating each of our unique gifts and talents and opinions, but functioning together as one with Christ as the head. That's where our fellowship and our unity is rooted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.